Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So uh, this week we have our quarterly insight podcast. So this is our quarterly market review that we've been uh, working writing very regularly for decades now. Uh, probably one of our most popular publications. So this time round, uh, just to remind you, you can download that from the EFG website. There's a nice little icon you can click in and follow as we go along the um, the insight or indeed if you know the inside inside out you can just follow our discussion so today i have uh, paul temberton who helps us put the insight together welcome paul hello thank you and we have uh, joaquin tool who many of you know already also now a host on the beyond the benchmark podcast as well as daniel murray and of course Gianluigi Mandrazato. So uh, we'll sort of kick off and the front cover of the insight is what we've called turbulent times. Certainly has been turbulent, particularly if you're a fixed income investor because the returns so far this year have been something you're probably not used to as a fixed income investor, certainly uh, not a treasury or a, or a gilt or a bunt investor over the last uh, over the last um, you know, 25 years or actually longer, actually probably 45 years. Um, so, uh, you know, very unusual times. And, and that has meant that uh, multi-asset portfolios have suffered, particularly as equity markets have also been struggling as a result of inflation worries, as a result of um, the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And now with the Fed raising rates and other central banks following suit, worries about recession. So we've gone through what I call uh, a whole cycle in six months uh, in terms of strong growth, stagflation to recession all in six months. So uh, certainly from a narrative perspective, it's been an exceptionally turbulent and indeed volatile time. So hopefully as we move into the second half of the year, we have some more positive news for you. But uh, we're going to start with uh, Paul just in the overview section and um, one of the words that I'd picked up uh, was globalization to autarky. So maybe, Paul, if you can explain what autarky is and, uh, and its historical context. Well, it's interesting how many people haven't heard that word. I think it's a lovely word. It comes from uh, Ricardo and uh, his economics of the 19th century, so a country aiming for self-sufficiency. And he talked about the example of cloth and wine and what a bad idea it would be for an economy like the UK to try and make grow its own cotton and make its own cloth and sort of make its own wine. And it was much better to trade with Portugal and other countries which could do those with a comparative advantage. But we're going back to a world where we're thinking about autarky, self-sufficiency. So self-sufficiency in energy, which we talk about in a special focus here. Self-sufficiency in all sorts of things, sort of semiconductors. We want to be making our own and we want to reshore, I suppose, is the new autarky word. Um lesson from most economics would be that doesn't really make a great deal of sense. Um, But I think that's the new regime, if you like, or part of the new regime that we're we're in. But the other word that we take is one from Adam Tooze, um, great commentator on sort of current uh, developments. And he says we're in a polycrisis. I think polycrisis works quite well, Mm. because we've got 
in inflationary problems, we've got recessionary problems, we've got stagflationary problems, we've got globalization problems, uh, we've got problems with how central banks run things. Uh, they were doing such a good job for such a long time, and now governors like Andrew Bailey says, well, inflation's 10% plus and there's not much I can do about it, which is not really the sort of message that we've been getting from policymakers. So they're the elements of the polycrisis. But just as we're talking about a polycrisis, I don't know, maybe I'm too optimistic, Mose. <laughs> and I know you're optimistic as mm. well. Mm. But things seem to be turning a bit. Shipping costs are coming down. Supply chain pressures are easing. Oil prices are coming down and so on. So maybe we've got too concerned. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, when, we, uh, when we're putting this together um, and we, you know, chart number two is actually a pretty good idea of how it started to roll over in terms of freight rates and uh, some of those supply chain pressures, um, I think um, I, I kind of sp split myself supply chain challenges into maybe two or three components. First is obviously um, COVID related. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's in some respect fairly obvious. And I think we kind of think of those as being certainly for goods and services, uh, sorry, goods, maybe not services, certainly goods as being temporary. Um, then we obviously have the Russia-Ukraine crisis and what that's meant for uh, commodity prices, particularly uh, oil and gas. Um, but we've seen you know, wheat prices drop 40-odd percent from the peak in the last um, few few weeks. And certainly um, the Federal Reserve, with their 75 basis point rate hike, calmed the markets down a bit. Certainly the bond market has calmed down, has rallied something like 65-odd basis points from the peak uh, of, that, of that period. So I sort of compare Andrew Bailey versus Chair Powell. <laughs> Chair Powell looks as though he's getting his credibility back. Yep. Yeah. Um, whereas Andrew Bailey probably, <laughs> you know, is probably still too late to the party. Um, and, mm. you know, with the utility price caps coming up, you know, doesn't look too clever. Well, and I, I'm all, I also sort of think the Diego Maradona school of economics, the one that Mervyn King liked, is also relevant here. So say you'll increase rates ever such a lot. The bond market tanks, long-term mortgage rates go up, and basically that does a lot of the central bank's work. Mm. And we've certainly seen that in the in the US, maybe less so in the UK. Yeah, less so in the UK, yeah. 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 And then the um, the other point I was going to make is, you know, we still have this issue of uh, you know, people not necessarily going back to work. So workforce participation is still, in many countries, is below where it was in 2019, we know the reasons why people decided to retire and and uh, and so the way i likened it is um if you suddenly had everyone if, if everyone said well you now retire at 50 or 55 you'd have this huge shock to the system because you, you know you've haven't got the natural flow of younger people coming into the workforce at the same pace so so i think that um that may take a few more years to to um you know to iron out uh, unless high oil prices, high interest rates mean that people are forced to go back to work. And uh, and might I say, even a collapse in Bitcoin means that all of those people who thought they would stay at home and be Bitcoin traders <laughs> will have to go back to work now. <laughs> I mean, that's a really, really interesting point. We mentioned it in the UK section. And, you know, we talk about UK unemployed people, a million or so, but there were a million on zero hours contracts. And a lot more people than that 
on long-term sick leave or voluntarily sort of early retired and so on. The labor markets are a um, strange thing. It's not employed versus unemployed. There are lots and lots of different categories of uh, people in within the working age population. Mm, no, absolutely. I think the th- last point you make about the Volcker's Fed, I think that is all about central bank credibility. I think, you know, maybe three months ago, Powell was certainly feeling a lot of pressure. I'll certainly say some of that pressure is certainly alleviated um, with the latest move in, in interest rates. And I think it's something that that started to add a little bit to credibility. Yep. And also, unlike many other countries around the world, the dollar's been strong, which is, we also forget, is deflationary. So, um, and moving on to um, graph four, actually, and I'm going to turn to uh, to Daniel. And obviously, Daniel, is, um, uh, as we've noted recently in some of our other presentations, that within the Google Trends data, recession now trumps uh, inflation as the biggest issue for... Googlers, one of the things we kind of always go back to fundamentals is, you know, the yield curve and what the yield curve tells us about the probability of recession. Yeah, so obviously um, recession is very hard to predict and very hard to be precise about the timing. But as much as we can get a handle on what's happening in the US, the yield curve slope does seem to be about the best thing we have. And it's that short end of the yield curve that statistically and academically seems to be the best guy. So we know that the curve is very flat from about two years out, but uh, because the curve is still waiting for short rates to rise and we still think there's further um, Fed rate hiking going on, then um, that front part of the curve is still uh, reasonably steep. And so because that front part of the curve is still reasonably steep, that that tells us that um, the curve is not currently pricing in a recession for this year. Now, of course, the curve isn't always rising there, there are reasons, always reasons why um, this time might be different, but I think that uh, certainly worth bearing in mind that as an indicator of recessions, that's that's probably the best thing we have. And at the moment, not currently seen in a recession, but of course, the more the Fed hikes rates, the greater the probability goes up. I think um, I think most commentators really think about the the recession example as one where the Fed will find it very very hard to engineer. A soft landing, which I guess is the big is the big question, um, and you know, the history of managing soft landings is actually not that not that easy. So, I think our views are, don't if I correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Our, our views are that uh, you know we may well go when we go into 2023, may well see um, a recession, but it may be w- similar to the sort of 2000s early 2000s experience where. We have kind of the odd quarter and uh, not quite an NBR recession, but because employment is still very low, which is obviously also very unusual. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I think um, soft landing is very hard to engineer. You need a whole lot of factors in your favour, aside from just the policy piece of that jigsaw. Um, but uh, it may well be that we end up with a, a, a recession, according to the NBR, something that's actually quite mild. So 2000, 2001, that recession, we, there were, in the US, there was never two consecutive causes of negative growth. So we had negative growth, I think, in Q2 and Q4, and Q4 related to, to 9-11. Um, so it's, you know, it's not impossible to see a similar situation um, uh, as and when we see the next recession in the US, given, as you say, very tight labour markets um, and... Uh, 
you know, the sort of the lags benefit to consumer and corporate balance sheets of the various COVID um, stimulus packages that we've got in place over the past couple of years. The other section we talked a little bit about uh, the uh, US equities uh, during um, the 70s uh, period. Uh, so we've got uh, may, maybe a slightly different perspective than most commentators have. Obviously, most people talk about how poorly equities did during that period. But, um, um, you know, we've noted that uh, small and mid caps actually did fun, you know, far, far better. In fact, um, as Aswath Demodran, who's one of the gurus of equity valuation noted recently on a podcast I listened to was that that's where the the small cap effect or small cap premium first uh, was born out. Um, uh, Any thoughts on on that, Daniel? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And the outperformance of small caps over large caps in the 1970s is really quite profound, several hundred percent, if I remember correctly. They're really very, very sharp. It's not entirely clear why that is, but it might well be something to do with the increased flexibility that uh, smaller companies have over larger companies. So larger companies are more closely tied in with labor unions and their supply chains are longer and their supply relationships tend to be um, harder to exit from, whereas smaller companies perhaps have greater flexibility to deal with the uh, rapidly shifting economic plates that arise from higher inflation. So it'll be interesting to see um, what happens over the next few years and the next few months, but clearly that's something we're watching closely and that's a distinct possibility. But it's also worth noting, of course, that small caps have underperformed large caps by quite a lot over the past few years. So um, also another reason to watch that part of the market very closely. And we sort of end with a a quick discussion about uh, the CAPE and obviously it's come down quite a bit in terms of valuation terms. Uh, but we're entering into into zones with I kind of call neutral zones, um, possibly marginally attractive, but um, uh, certainly um, uh, much better than they were uh, six to nine months ago. Um, in terms of uh, asset market performance, we won't spend too much time on there because it's all history. Uh, but uh, just going to reiterate some of the challenges that uh, multi-asset investors had over the period uh, and of course fixed income investors because they're not used to seeing such uh, uh, such large uh, falls in terms of um, essentially high quality uh, bonds uh, and the falls they've had so um, you know, they're very much driven by the uncertainty inflation fears and um, and uh, supply chains and everything else we've just talked about uh, so moving then on to the United States um, and uh, maybe Paul something uh, again many of our listeners probably haven't heard too much about is the SARM rule. Yeah, well Daniel talked about the yield curve as a indicator of future recession but there's a more immediate one uh, which has done quite a good job recently and that's the SARM rule and what you do is you take the lowest unemployment rate over the last 12 months and then measure the current unemployment rate relative to that. So now we're around about the lowest level for the last 12 months anyway, 3.6%. If it goes up 0.3%, so if it goes up from 3.6 to 3.9, then that, on the basis of the last two big recessions, um, indicates a a recession is starting at exactly that point in time. So, in other words, it's something to look out for as we go into the sort of second half of the year. 
if we do get the unemployment rate rising, 3.6 to 3.9, that is the start of recession, according to this rule. So it's something to look out for. That might not happen, of course. We know we might just stay at very low levels. There's a very tight labour market, lots of vacancies, you know, twice as many vacant job openings as there are unemployed. So that's the one to look out for if you want a more immediate indicator. I'm not going to say it's not going to work, but, you know, just something to look out for. Now, obviously, uh, we, we talked touched upon this a little bit earlier in terms of wage growth and, and some of those uh, inflation expectations. Some of the ones that investors use are you know, five-year uh, forward rates and uh, um, uh, expect inflation rates, break-even rates, and those sort of things. Um, and we talk a little bit about that. What, what are they telling us? Well, I think this is a really interesting one because there's a, a survey. We used it actually in the last quarterly, University of Michigan five-year inflation forecast. And it's one that, interestingly, Chair Powell referred to when the 75 basis point interest rate increase was made. And he said, oh, his inflation expectations have gone from 3% to 3.3%, so five-year average inflation, and put that as one of the reasons for the large increase in rates. Well, a week or so after he made that comment, the data were revised down, so there's no longer a big increase in five-year expected inflation rates. Um, does that make him look... Foolish? Well, no, it doesn't look foolish. I mean, things do get revised, but it's an indication of the sort of very nervy markets we've been in, and I think an overreaction uh, in in respect to that particular survey. And it's something Stefan's talked about as well. You know that that's mainly sort of driven by one-year expectations, not, I mean, not really expectations over five years and. Find me a consumer who can give you an accurate five-year inflation <laughs> forecast. It would be very, very useful, wouldn't it? It would be perfect. Yeah. It would be great, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who would need economists in that scenario? <laughs> um, so let's go on to uh, the UK. Obviously, uh, we've just had uh, Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak resign uh, <laughs> yesterday, so it's uh, kind of fresh in our minds. But um, uh, we talk um, about the... Uh, government unpopularity um, and, uh, of course, some of the labour challenges that the UK has. Uh, maybe, Daniel, do you want to comment on, uh, on, uh, on that? Yeah, the, the political situation is obviously pretty fractious at the moment um, and you know, it's questionable for how much longer uh, Prime Minister will be able to cling on. I guess time will tell in that regard. I think you know, probably what's more important from a market perspective is um, this sort of uh, contradiction of um, apparent data points. So, one hand, we've got consumer confidence at uh, its lowest ever level. We've got, you know, renewed talk of all the sorts of things we were worried about in the 1970s with, you know, high oil prices and door shortages and, and so forth. But at the same time, unemployment is very low, um, and we're still seeing this post COVID recovery, high savings rate. So uh, there's a sort of an odd mixture of events. I think the you know there's a couple of underlying longer-term things that are happening in the UK that are uh, creating challenges. Uh, aside from the political situation, the UK's demographics um, are undoubtedly a, a contributory factor in that. Um, we have uh, you know a lot of people in this sort of no man's land. They're not unemployed. They're not employed, but they've taken themselves out of the labour market. We know there's been a, a very large increase in a number of people who are on zero hours contracts and that sort of 
can distort the data a bit. Um, and uh, there's uh, quite a lot of people as well on long-term sickness. So labor market perhaps not as tight as if, um, as if you looked at the headline data alone. Um, and I think, you know, other special factors contributing to the UK, uh, there's that word Brexit that we haven't heard for a while. That's creating extra noise for the UK. And uh, as well, you know, starting to see just a shift in the balance of labour market power back towards uh, labour unions. So that's also adding into the mix. So, yeah, difficult situation for the UK at the moment. Yeah, with uh, also uh, pound at a level against the dollar that we haven't seen since uh, the mid 80s. Um, you know, certainly um, expensive for us Brits to go on holiday <laughs> abroad, uh, you know, at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it is interesting. It is a near, well, lows we haven't seen for, for many, many, many years. Um, is this a buying point for the pound? Same for um, the euro, though, isn't it? So. Same for the euro, yeah. 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 That's, that, that's true, that's true. Although, yeah, I guess we only have a fixed amount of data for the euro. Was, Deutschmark <laughs> was a lot, lot stronger, uh, you know, before then. Uh, talking about the Deutschmark and the euro, uh, let's turn on to the eurozone. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, two big things uh, for, um, for, for eurozone to deal with at the moment Obviously, how do we uh, get out of the whole of uh, Russian gas dependence? And, uh, of course, the um, the raising of interest rates, tackling inflation in Europe, at the same time ensuring that um, we don't have what I call the boomerang effect of uh, higher rates then leading to spread widening in Italy and other countries, which then forces a recession again. So you have this sort of circular a boomerang that just you know keeps on coming back. But uh, let's let's tackle the first one, uh, Gianluigi, on the on the uh, on, on the Russian gas situation, which uh, people are obviously very concerned about as we as we enter the um, the winter months. Uh, absolutely, the latest news flow has not been really uh, reassuring because Russia announced that uh, the inflows from uh, the north through the North Stream will be reduced because of maintenance, and there is concerned that actually they will not start after the maintenance, the program, the planned maintenance period. At the same time, there are some strikes in Norway which will uh, limit the inflows from Norway, which have been taking up most of the, um, the imports that, that uh, Europe used to have from, uh, from Russia. And that has so far uh, allowed uh, European uh, tanks to be filled to up about 60%, which is definitely more than it was last year, and overall will be a relatively comfortable uh, level, uh, thinking about next winter. But of course, the, the, the short-term output is so uncertain that there is concern that the inflows will not be enough to meet the, uh, the level needed to have a safe and warm winter. And at the same time, because of the risk, of this risk, there could be rationing on the corporate sector, which would, uh, of course, uh, limit the activity and then eventually uh, possibly accelerate the slump of the Eurozone economy into recession already in the next uh, few months. Exactly. So, and then in terms of, obviously that's one big thing to, to deal with, um, which is obviously a, uh, you know, a big challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, we give some good data there in terms of, um, you know, the, the impact uh, of, of uh, 
of uh, of Russian gas, uh, and then we we have the doom loop. I think uh, we call it, um, which uh, which is also a challenge. Uh, any thoughts around where we are, and indeed, um, how does the ECB bring back its credibility? You know, it looked like they they half baked this one. Uh, you know, didn't do a particularly good job uh, in getting this through. No, no, no. Indeed, it was uh, quite uh, disconcerting that they seem to be completely unprepared about what would have been an obvious question. I, what would you do with uh, you know the risk of wider spreads if uh, you increase rates? Uh, pretty much as it happened in 2011. But of course, back then it was a completely new situation. Uh, they, that to some extent, could not have been fully anticipated at this time. It should have been anticipated. Uh, it happened very a similar situation uh, when COVID, uh, you know, started, and they had to fix it uh, with the PEP, and that was effective. Uh, so uh, similar to uh, two years ago, they called uh, uh, an emergency meeting and announced that they will unveil the diesel of a new tool, uh, most likely at the next policy meeting uh, at the end of July. Uh, but in, in, after that, nothing much has been uh, said. But that, you know, the rumor that most likely the new tool will have little, if at all, uh, conditionality. Uh, most likely purchases of uh, peripheral sovereigns, with, and of course, Italy is uh, <laughs> top of the list, will be serialized either with uh, money market operation, uh, you know. Uh, mopping up the liquidity or selling other bonds in the ECB portfolio. Uh, so we'll see. It's, it's quite uncertain. Of course, they created some expectation. Market reacted more positively than could have been anticipated given the lack of detail. Uh, but there is always the risk of uh, some disappointment when they will eventually uh, reveal the, the content of the new tool. So moving, thanks, uh, Johnny. So moving on to then Switzerland, um, obviously the SMB came out with the big shock of raising 50 basis points, um, um, makes uh, the Bank of England look relatively pale in comparison. Um, SMB kind of shocked the market. Obviously, there were, uh, and, and Stefan Gerlach, unfortunately, couldn't attend this podcast, but you know, made the comment that the fact is there were a good couple of meetings for the ECB and the Federal Reserve in between the next meeting of the SMB. Um Thoughts around um, uh, you know Swiss interest rates and expectations. Well, uh, the first thing is to ask is that uh, the SMB, in contrast with the other major central banks, uh, don't uh, engage in on forward guidance. So eventually, when they decide something, it's always a bit of a surprise because you don't know until until they announce it. Uh, possibly a little deviation from that is that uh, in the press conference after the last meeting when they surprised markets. They basically opened quite uh, clearly the gate for more rate increases. Although more recently, President Jordan said that maybe only one more rate increase, although he didn't say how big, uh, could be enough to you know bring inflation, projected inflation, back within the zero to two percent target range, which could be enough for the SMB to at least take a pause and see what happens to the economy and and inflation uh, down the line. But indeed, it was uh, also a good move from, uh, say, um, SMB standing because it uh, reaffirmed that uh, they are not follower of what PCB or the Fed 
do, but they take their decision for their own sake and for the best of the Swiss economy. Certainly uh, added to their credibility um, with that move and you know, similar to Powell, I guess, uh, you know, both probably came out of this better than the ECB or the Bank of England did. Um, uh, Bank of Japan will come to in a second with Joaquin. Uh, the other point then is obviously on the Swiss franc exchange rate. Um, uh, Gianluigi is obviously a, a hot topic for um, many in Switzerland. Yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, to some extent, the SMB expressed some concern about uh, the Swiss franc, but not for its strength, it, uh, its strength, but rather from uh, the potential weakness or relative weakness, because they said that if uh, it kept on weakening, as it did, particularly against the, U- the US dollar in the first half of the year, if it kept on weakening, that would have meant that uh, Switzerland would have been importing much more inflation given the higher level of prices uh, abroad. Um, uh, that is a, a sharp uh, change uh, in the assessment of the, of the currency when compared to just uh, a few weeks or months before, and suggest that they will be paying much attention. But on that, uh, the SMB also reminded the market that they have quite a large, uh, you know, uh, inventory of assets that can they can deploy or foreign assets that can they that they can sell to support uh, the currency if need be. Pretty much as they purchase the foreign asset to weaken uh, the currency in the, in the over the last ten years. And so that's another factor to watch uh, and to kind of complement the use of interest rates to keep inflation in check. Good. So let's move on to uh, Joaquin uh, and um, and Asia uh, and China. So uh, we've certainly at EFT become a little bit, certainly over the last couple of months, turned a little bit more positive on uh, on China, uh, partly because of the, if you like, uh, the, I guess, uh, uh, continuous lockdowns that they've had, and particularly the more aggressive lockdowns they've had uh, in the beginning of the year, uh, and uh, in in well, I guess uh, the beginning of Q2 and the end of Q1, um, and we um, you know started to see rollback uh, certainly against the Chinese tech sector with the um, now impending IPO of uh, and financial that was uh, famously uh, sl- stopped. Um, Back in uh, 2020 or the end of 2020, um, it seems to be a, a thawing of relations between the government and the uh, the tech sector, uh, as well as, of course, the um, kind of post-COVID relief and uh, return of the economy. And I think even more recently, there's talk of a, of a thawing in the Chinese relations for certain uh, consumer goods for the Americans to actually try and reduce inflation for Chinese goods as well. So, um, so this, it was, I would say, marginally more positive news. And, of course, uh, to recover, uh, we need stimulus. So maybe, um, Joaquin, you can uh, give us uh, some insight into um, uh, you know, how this is uh, looking to develop. Yeah, so it's a, it's a reality that the, the Chinese economy has, has weakened. Uh, and there's been some... Um, stimulus measures that have been announced, but definitely not of the of the magnitude of the of the big monetary and fiscal packages that that were announced. For example, 
in in the crisis of uh, 08 and, and, and uh, 09, um, which uh, at, at that point represented uh, just over 10 percent of the of the of the GDP uh, at the time, and, and a massive credit expansion. This time, the stimulus has not been as um, as, as, as strong, uh, and therefore this will continue to affect uh, growth in the country. I was looking at the uh, expectations for for this year, and China is expected to grow by half of what India is expected to grow this year. Which is uh, which is quite sin- significantly. Um, however, we think that there's there's been uh, th- there's some more positives coming into into the economy uh, coming uh, coming forward. So, for example, the as you were mentioning the, the incentives for the auto sector. Um, there's also the incentives on the on the real estate sector, which is massive for for the Chinese economy. Um, and and all of this rollback, let's say, of, of the um, uh, COVID restrictions will be maintained until pretty much un- until the end of the year, until Q4 before uh, Xi's confirmation. Um, so uh, we expect then that that we will start to see the, the the results of this of this reopening in China or the results of some, some of these uh, stimulus that might generate uh, a boost to the economy that could become uh, one of the few uh, countries that are actually um, stimulating in the end of this year, beginning of, of, of next year, will make China one of the uh, largest growing economies probably for next year. Mm, no, exactly. And I think uh, what's interesting, um, something for me, is their inflation is undershooting expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time I saw was that 2.2% versus 3% is their target. And obviously that's... Uh, that gives them the the headroom to to stimulate, and uh, certainly when they did do that huge stimulus in 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 oh eight and oh nine, that did cause you know uh, excessive credit expansion and and inflation and and um, and and concerns around real estate and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. The opposite is the case right now, and and I think that gives us a little bit more confidence that uh, things are on the improving trend. But uh, of course, we will uh, we will see. Yeah, and then the financial market side, like um, China has benefited from from having um, uh, quite low and stable uh, bond yields, um, which are probably going to become much more attractive from from an investor point of view, which is quite a, a difference in the in in the trend of what we would have served in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and then back to your point, what you were saying about um, uh, the, the Bank of Japan and some of the other trends that have kind of uh, broken is the fact that. The Japan has uh, has not been um, tightening monetary policy even as inflation um, has has uh, increased uh, above that that the two percent uh, target that they, they've had for such a long time, um, and this difference in uh, in in rates have, uh, has uh, uh, has led to a, a persistent weakening of the of the yen. Like in the times of um, of uh, of volatility of uncertainty, the yen would normally be a, a safe haven and. Uh, currency and this has not been the case uh, so far we've seen that that persistent weakness of the of the japanese currency with uh, which is also one of the big changes in, in financial markets recently mm, no exactly the dollar yen has been an enigma uh, certainly um in the very short term looks as though it's stabilized a bit at these levels possibly by the fear that the bank of japan may roll back some of those uh, stimulus measures certainly the yen would strengthen significantly in that uh, in that uh, in, in that scenario, so moving then on to uh, Latin America, um, 
I guess uh, two key things. These guys know how to tackle inflation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they have a history of, of inflation, um, particularly during the 90s and success of, of inflation targeting uh, policies and uh, more central bank independence, uh, but also a history of dealing with unions that have a lot of power um, of um, uh, automatic indexation of, uh, of public wages uh, when inflation gets to um, uh, two digits. So... This, all of these things have, have become um, quite uh, embedded in, in, uh, in expectations always in, in Latin America, um, to the point that at the moment inflation is probably not the biggest risk, merely politics is most uh, the, the, the biggest problem that, um, that would keep us a bit more um, on, on the sidelines for, for in terms of going all deep overweight in, in Latin America. Um, uh, but yeah, central banks there have been successful uh, in the past at um, uh, attacking inflation, and now it has not been different. Like from inflation rates that were between two and four uh, percent among the uh, the five major economies, ex Argentina, ex Venezuela, of course, um, they have reacted very quickly and and forcefully uh, with uh, eight, nine, ten, eleven um, interest rate hikes, uh, since, uh, since the reopening of, of, of the economy since, since 2021, pretty much. Um, and this, uh, increase in inflation and this increase in, in interest rates has led to, uh, yields in local currency bonds to become, uh, quite attractive. Like we've seen, apart from, from Chile, when they're, they're, they're still very, very low, we see, uh, in in the rest of the region, um, local currency yields have between eight and and what thirteen percent more or less um, at the moment, which could become uh, attractive if inflation actually starts to to decline. And of course, with the with the big caveat of the of the of the currency that could kind of um, hinder those, those returns. But even in, in in that case, over the long term, if you can tolerate a bit of the volatility, it could be an interesting opportunity. Mm. And again, in a world. Lacking of real yields, <laughs> they're actually one yeah. of the few places in the world that have real yields uh, or positive real yields. Um, and I, and I, you know, it'd be interesting to see how, it, you know, whether financial markets are very fickle animals. But it'd be interesting to see if um, if uh, you know investors start to think of real yields again, because at the moment they haven't really um, thought about it. And if you were looking purely at real yield play, you know, you would actually also expect the currency to appreciate. Um, uh, in in normal conditions, so um, you know certainly more reasons to be uh, optimistic to with 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 you know emerging markets who can cope with inflation. Um, so last topic mm-hmm. we have we're moving to geopolitics, and um, that's one of the big topics of the of of the day and probably of the decade is um, is going to be energy security. Uh, so I'm going to sort of bring back to Paul in terms of you know what are the big challenges around um energy security which uh, you know i think is um uh you know pretty much key here yeah huge huge channel challenges and sort of defining what we're talking about is 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 key uh this morning i saw a, a protester outside the european parliament on the news and uh the, the protester's banner read not in my taxonomy. And I thought, what is he talking about? Not in my taxonomy meant that uh, gas and nuclear power was not in his idea of what a green taxonomy was. So they shouldn't be regarded as green transition sort of fuels. And I must admit, I tend to agree with him. Um, The point is, if we're going to be self-sufficient in energy, 
and also green at the same time. That is one enormous challenge, especially if you couple it with, oh, let's solve the cost of living crisis, which means, you know, lower prices for energy. Very, very hard to do. Uh, So what we start off by observing is that more than 80% of the world's power generation still comes from fossil fuels. We do put gas in as a fossil fuel. It's not green. Um, the self-sufficient economies in the world at the moment are all uh, fossil fuel-rich economies. You know, the likes of uh, Norway and Russia and uh, even the US sort of comes into that. But that's not what our idea of self-sufficiency is going forward. Self-sufficiency doesn't doesn't mean having lots of gas and oil. It means being self-sufficient in green technologies. And so we now have to say something favourable about the UK. That's good, isn't it? Because there's not much normally said in its favour. But the UK is pretty much the leader in this, especially in wind power. You've probably seen the numbers, they're quite widely quoted. A quarter of our electricity in the UK comes from wind power. Most of those are the offshore wind turbines that are now very much a feature of the UK uh, coastline. Um, that generates 10, um, uh, uh, 10 gigawatts of power at the moment. Now, just to take that up to 40 or 50 gigawatts. And I, I used to be an ornithologist in my younger life, and I tuned into a podcast. Mo, most, my podcasts are different to yours. This was about seabird life, and it was about the impact of offshore wind on seabirds. The, 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 the happy conclusion is it's not too bad, but the rather startling intermediate conclusion was that to generate 50 gigawatts, what you need to do is you need to install one new offshore wind turbine every day uh, for 30 years. Now, that's a lot of building. Now, you can put up a wind turbine offshore in one day. Uh, It's feasible, but to do one every single day is amazing. And so, I mean, the RSPB, I mean, I just thought, this guy is a bit fast and loose with his statistics. I better check this. But actually, it, it is right just to get all of the current electricity production to wind production, offshore wind production, you'd have to install one a day for 12 years. But then that's not doing other things you want to do in energy self-sufficiency, you know, Tesla charging points and decarbonising cement and steel. UK is not a big steel producer, but just to decarbonise steel, because you, you need the... Uh, green electricity for the electrolysis process that is used in the um, uh, uh, hydrogen-related process for sort of making steel. Um, that's a, that, that, that takes you up to the 30 years' worth of daily installation of offshore wind turbines. So you think, OK, well, that can be done. It's pretty ambitious. And that's just the scale of the job that is needed for the UK. I mean, there are other things that we can do, solar power as well. But you, for those who are not familiar with the UK, it's not a terribly sunny place. Um, it's going to rely predominantly sort of on offshore wind. So then you sort of take that sort of problem globally. This is for a small island with a long sort of coastline. It is an enormous uh, problem sort of putting in all of that uh, all of that capacity it took me back to 
your offsite. Do you remember your offsite when we talked about green technologies and how Australia could come to the rescue? Because Australia's got a very, very long sort of coastline and it's a very shallow sort of uh, coast. Um, so you could generate sort of a huge amount of electricity in Australia. So, so pondering on this, starting with birds and wind turbines, I came to the conclusion that Australia might be the future for offshore wind. And that's an optimistic note. Mm, gosh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of money is being raised. Um, you just noticed, so Brookfield raised the largest infrastructure, a green infrastructure fund of $25 billion, uh, apparently. Yep. Um, so there is a lot of money going into it, but the, the extent of what needs to be done is you know can't be underestimated. Uh, I think that's quite clear. But the reality is that fossil fuels are probably going to be here for a very long time yet. Um and anyone who thinks they're not going to be uh, probably uh, mistaken, um, uh, well, I'm gravely mistaken. Yep. Um, a nuclear is a decent option, just no- noting here that nuclear is about 16% uh, of the UK. Uh, certainly is more for other countries. Um, um, and obviously um, hydro is something that we don't do much in the UK, but certainly in places like Switzerland and others is, is, is quite substantial. Do a little bit, but then, of course, a lot of country, Germany, obviously, notably, is abandoning its nuclear mm. sort of programme. That That's why it's difficult, and that's why the guy with the pro- protest banner, you know, not in my taxonomy, gas and nuclear, I think, has got a very serious point that, he, uh, that he's making. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, obviously, the, the Russia and Ukraine situation certainly just complicates things dramatically, certainly for Europe. Um, and... Um, you can't help thinking that nuclear is probably here to stay um, for, uh, uh, for say, for another hundred years at least. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so with that, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, spending the time um, to take us through that. I think it was, uh, as always, very fascinating, uh, enlightening, and certainly something I learn each time I come to the podcast uh, beyond what's written. So uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, listening in. Uh, appreciate your attendance and uh, of course if you have any questions please feel free to email us at uh, beyond at fgam.com and uh, with that we'll speak to you again next week. Mm-hmm.